don't know how many of you are aware of this, but uh, as a young child, I mean, I was involved with sports at a very young age. I mean, some of you know that I wrestled pretty much my whole life. And uh, one of the things I also started at a very young age, I think it was about second grade, is I started taking Taekwondo. Anybody into martial art here at all or anything? Crickets once again. There we go. Well, let me tell you about martial arts. <laughs> So at a young age, I, it just so happens that you know I started wrestling at a young age because my sixth grade teacher, who's also the PE coach, he just happened to love wrestling. He got wrestling mats, and we started wrestling at a very young age. My fifth grade teacher, Howard Swanzinger, he was a Taekwondo instructor, a third degree black belt in Willow, Alaska, of all places. And so he started a Taekwondo instruction, and I was like, that sounds like a good idea. So from very early age, I was always doing something. It was either in wrestling, it was in cross country, or I was uh, in taekwondo every single day of the week. Um, that's just been my life growing up. Uh, but the interesting thing about taekwondo, really, first of all, taekwondo is a hodgepodge. I have actually nine, uh, see, I got to make right fingers here, nine different combinations of martial arts in Korea, and they actually combined them all, and they formed, actually not too long ago, about 60, 70 years ago, what we call Taekwondo. So it's a, a conglomeration of multiple martial arts all put together. And so it's Korean style. And so what we had, what well, we, I grew up kind of learning all about the kicks and the punches and doing the splits. Yes, I could drop in the splits and fly through the air and do all those kind of things. But the first thing you learned actually was not to kick, was not to punch. It wasn't even to have the right stance or anything. It was learning the five tenets that made up the the character quality of anybody pursuing this martial art. And so what we learned before we learned anything else from day one, first day of instruction was this. Here are the five tenets of Taekwondo. It is courtesy. It is integrity. It's perseverance. It's self-control. And it's called indomitable spirit. Courtesy is obviously straightforward, right? Courtesy means to be respectful. It's oftentimes we use the, the golden rule as a way, you know, you treat others the way you want to be treated. You treat others with respect because you want to be treated with respect. Integrity is pretty straightforward as well. It's basically you living a life of honesty. You're not being two-faced. You're not being hypocritical or divided. Who you are in private is who you are in public. That is a person of integrity. Perseverance, obviously, is that drive that helps you keep working even though you feel like quitting. You keep pushing forward. You keep walking. You keep being moving forward as you feel led, even though everything in you wants to throw in the towel. That's perseverance. Then you have self-control, which means to control your thoughts as well as your actions. Again, this was very huge in Taekwondo because oftentimes what was conveyed to us over and again was people may pick a fight with you or you may be tempted to use now what you know to win a fight. And yet the greatest defense in Taekwondo was to have a self-controlled composure. It wasn't to kick first or to kick hardest. It was to say, know when to kick and when not to kick. That was a self, that was, that was self-control according to Taekwondo. But then there was indomitable spirit. Indomitable spirit uh, is kind of like perseverance and that it means to be to stay strong and it means to stick to your beliefs and your convictions against insurmountable odds. In other words, an indomitable spirit is moved and compelled by conviction, regardless of the the odds, regardless of the the pressures, regardless of the obstacles and difficulties that you may face as a result 
Those are the five tenets. It's courtesy, integrity, perseverance, self-control, indomitable spirit. As I was reflecting on the message here this morning, we are actually on our final virtue of the fruit of the Spirit, and that is self-control. Now, what's interesting about self-control is that Taekwondo was not the first to propose or put forward the need, the importance of living a life that is self-controlled. In fact, we see that Scripture is replete with all kinds of examples of what it means as well as the command to live a life that is defined by self-control. For example, our base verse that we've been working from through this little series in Galatians 5.22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, but I flipped them, and self-control. Or, for example, Paul, Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5 through 8, he says, Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly, brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and increasing, they keep you from being ineffective in the knowledge or and, and also unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter also sells, says in one of his letters, the end of all things is at hand. Because of this, therefore, be self-controlled and be sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. It's interesting to note that Peter actually says, your prayers are contingent upon a life that is that, it, that exudes or exercises self-control and being sober-minded. Paul says in Titus chapter 2, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, which is training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age. Again, over and again, you can look through every single book of the Bible almost and find a reason either explicitly talking about self-control or implicitly alluding to the need to live a life that is self-controlled. The question, however, is, what does that actually mean? What is self-control? What does it mean to live a life that we might be defined by self-control? Well, this morning I want to highlight two, I believe, prominent aspects or facets that are really closely related together, but two facets or descriptions that, compri that comprise the virtue of self-control. The first is called discipline. I'm not talking about your kids acting up and then you have to go take action, and we call that discipline. That may be a form of it. But the kind of discipline that I'm talking about is this. It's a discipline where you forego what is easy or wrong for, the, for in turn for what is better and for what is right. In other words, discipline is a mode or a way of life that is significantly influenced by a desired goal or outcome. One guy even said it this way, discipline is the bridge between goals and accomplish, accomplishments. And so if you have a desire, if you have a goal, if you have something, discipline is the means by which you change habits 
make certain choices in order to achieve or better accomplish that goal. So, for example, if your goal is to lose weight, then you don't eat the chocolate cake starting tomorrow. Because today is potluck day. So, diets always start tomorrow. And tomorrow, and tomorrow, and tomorrow. No, but for example, on a little more uh, serious note, if your goal is to climb Mount Rainier, as Kristen DeCou just did like last month, she didn't just go, hey, I'm going to climb it, I'm going to sign up for it, and just show up. No, she spent eight weeks in preparation for that ultimate goal to, you know, again, weather pending, achieve, and she did. She got to the top of Mount Rainier, and uh, and she even, as she was hearkening back on her whole experience, she says, there was a market of difference by t- people that trained and people that didn't train. Some people signed up for this thinking that it wasn't going to be that hard. They didn't train much. And guess what? Some did not attain their goal because they did not train appropriately. What is discipline? Discipline is I have a goal and therefore I identify a means and I make certain choices and I form certain habits in my life in order to, in order to attain that goal. As I kind of shared before, I was a wrestler growing up. Part of the, 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 you know, the, the reality of wrestling is that it requires a lot of sacrifice. Every sport requires a lot of sacrifice. Wrestling requires sacrifice in the sense that it also requires that you eliminate certain food items from your, your menu list. So that you can kind of uh, wrestle at the most ideal weight possible. And so being a wrestler, I was constantly saying no to things in order so I could say yes to something greater, something more long-term, something more long-lasting and satisfying. Again, what was put forward at the beginning every season was this, even preseason, it was this. He's like, it's all about state. It's all about getting to state. It's all about winning state. From the very beginning, for the first practice, before you start rolling around on the mat, it was always like, this is the goal. Now, how are we going to get there? And there's a number of things that we had to kind of personally decide upon, whether it be diet, whether it be practicing, even the intensity of your practice. All these things had to be factored in in order to better, to have a better chance of achieving the goal, which was to go to state and even potentially win state. The point is this. Discipline is a way of life. It's a way of life that includes your habits, your choices, your thoughts, that enables you to effectively pursue a certain goal or outcome in your life. It's a commitment to say no to certain things, even good things, mind you, so that you can say yes to better and best things for your life. Spiritually speaking, a disciplined life is one that is ordered by and oriented toward the kingdom of God. So a disciplined life from a spiritual perspective is one that ultimately lives for the kingdom of God. It seeks to, and what that means is it seeks to fulfill the will of God, both corporately or collectively as the church, but also individually as a follower of Jesus Christ. We see that Paul, for example, Paul was a man who lived a disciplined life. He was a man who lived a disciplined life so that he would complete his ministry faithfully. In fact, he even hearkens back or he recalls in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he says, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable wreath. 
So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. The fact is, none of us can fulfill our ministry. In fact, none of us can grow effectively in godliness apart from discipline. I think Martin Lloyd-Jones says it well when he says, I defy you to read the life of any saint that has ever adorned the life of the church without seeing at once that the greatest characteristic in the life of that saint was discipline and order. Invariably, it is the universal characteristic of all the outstanding men and women of God. And obviously, it is something that is thoroughly scriptural and absolutely essential. So I ask you, as you are reflecting, as you are listening, maybe the question that you can chew on for a little bit is this. Do you live a disciplined life as defined earlier? Would you say that your current habits, choices, patterns, ways of thinking are helping you achieve your goals or God's given, God's goals given to you? Or are they more of an obstacle in achieving your goals? Are your habits and your choices and your, and your, your way of thinking, are they, do they, do they stand in the way of your pursuit of Christ? It's interesting that Hebrews chapter 12, after, after encouraging through so many different examples of faithfulness, it goes into chapter 12 and says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin that clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. The fact is, and I think most of you would acknowledge this very quickly, sin is an obvious one. Sin is anything that, defi- that, that defies or stands against God's moral law. It is anything that goes against God's will. It is anything that is contrary to the kingdom of God. So sin, sin as a result will always negatively affect our intimacy with God as well as with one another. That's the devastating and destructive power of sin. But there's another thing that the, the author of Hebrews actually talks about here. It's not just sin. That's kind of obvious. But he talks about this weight also that can stand in the way. And that weight can be any number of things even that we might even label as neutral or amoral. But it's anything that stands in the way of our pursuit of Christ. And here's the trickiness of it. They can be really good things. Weight isn't sinful things necessarily. Weight is not those things that are bad. Weight can be good things, fun things, great opportunities. It can be anything that stands in the way of your pursuit for Christ. And here's the qualification. What is harmful for you may not actually be harmful for somebody else. What is 
unbeneficial for you may not actually be unbeneficial for somebody else. You have to be honest with yourself. So again, I ask, what habits, what choices, what activities, what pursuits, etc., potentially get in the way of your pursuit of Christ from a wholehearted effort? There's a second facet of self-control that is also important. It's not just discipline. Not that just that self-controlled life is a disciplined life. But the second description is restraint. It's closely related to discipline, but the, the, I want to kind of unpack this, this idea of restraint. Self-control is restraint. Self-control is to restrain one's emotions and actions and desires so that you can be in harmony with the will of God. In other words, self-control is saying no to what we want so that we can say yes to what God wants. Especially if you want to, if you, if what you want stands in the way of God's will for your life. Uh, Aaron Meinkoff, he actually kind of, he defines it this way. He says, self-control is the resistance of temptation and the refusal to give indwelling sin the upper hand. Again, self-control is restraint so that you can fulfill the will of God. Let me illustrate it in this way. You recall from the Old Testament, if you know your Bible somewhat decently, you recall that after the first king of Israel, whose name was Saul, disqualified himself because of disobedience, God used the prophet Samuel to anoint David, the runt of the litter, to be the next king of Israel. The irony of this whole, this whole anointing, however, it was not what anybody expected because David is anointed as the next king of Israel, and then guess what? He spends years on the run for his life, even, in fact, inhabiting the land of his enemies for a period of time, and even fighting for his enemies for a period of time. And the whole reason is because Saul is out to kill him, because Saul is jealous. He's envious. Everything that David touches, everything that David pursues, God blesses. And Saul already knows he's disqualified, and so he's going into a deeper, deeper state of bitterness and depression. He knows what's coming. One particular incident in 1 Samuel 24, we see that Saul is encamped down in the valley, and we see that David is, and his men are hiding in this big cave, and they're sitting in the back hiding out, and, and Saul leaves his his men to go relieve himself. You can probably understand what that means. And so he thinks he's getting away and he goes inside this cave to relieve himself. And he has no idea that David and his men are farther back in the cave watching everything unfold. And his men are even nudging him going, could you ask for a better opportunity, right? I mean, this running we've been doing for so long, this could end today. You take out the leader, boom. Everybody's going to follow you. This could be done in one felt stroke. So Saul relieves himself. David does not act. He starts walking back down out of the cave. And we read in 1 Samuel 24, it says, Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, My Lord and the King. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage to the guy who's been trying to kill him. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm. Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand into this cave. 
And some, and some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by that fact, for by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or, or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. David was a man who exercised restraint. Can you, can you just kind of put your feet in his sandals for a second? Imagine someone just who is out to just ruin your life. And they're doing, maybe you have somebody right now in your life that's trying to do that. Ruining your life, making life difficult, saying things, doing things, you hear about it, and everything in you wants vengeance, or at least justice. And it's, and it's tempting to go, man, there's something, there, there was some, maybe an opportunity for you to kind of get the upper hand. Maybe there's an opportunity to, to say something or do something that would kind of squelch the, the difficulty, squelch the trial in your life, and you could be done with it, but it would be at the expense of that person. You see, King David, he had actually multiple opportunities to kill Saul, and he didn't. Why? Because he entrusted himself to his father. He entrusted himself to God's sovereignty. He entrusted himself to God's ways, not his ways. He says, I'm going to be a man above reproach in all respects. I'm going to exercise restraint, otherwise known as self-control, and trust that God is the one who will avenge me. God is the one who's going to fight my battles. That's one example of restraint. I think of an even more profound example of restraint is seen through the lens of our Savior Jesus Christ. We see in Matthew chapter 4, right? This is the, on the eve of Jesus beginning his ministry. He goes into the wilderness and fasts for 40 days and 40 nights. You might think that he's completely depleted. As we talked about in our Gospel of Matthew series, it was actually in the process of fasting that, it, that spiritually empowered him to overcome temptation. So fasting was a means to be empowered by the Spirit to overcome temptation. But nonetheless, he's still physically weak. And Satan is trying to jump on this opportunity. And you know, he, he tempts him three times, but the overarching theme of his temptation is basically this. Jesus, I know you know what you're here to do. You know you're here to go to the cross. I know you're here to go to the cross. Let's come to a compromise solution. You can have this kingdom, this earthly kingdom, and forego the cross. You can have this earthly kingdom and not suffer and not die and not be rejected by your father. How tempting that might be, right? You don't have to do the hard thing. There's an easy button. And yet Jesus, he does not succumb to that temptation. He does not succumb to what is easy and convenient and less painful. But he surrenders his will to his Father's will through self-control. He does not give in. You might recall even in the Garden of Gethsemane when he, Jesus is already arrested and Peter 
takes out a sword and seeks to kind of defend or exercise justice. And, and Jesus says, put your sword away. I could literally call down legions of angels and wipe everybody out. I could, this could end in the snap of a finger. But Jesus exercised restraint. Why? For you. For me. Because if he did not do the hard thing, if he took the easy path, he would not be providing the redemption of our souls. We would not have the gift of salvation. We would not have the assurance of eternal life. We would not have our sins forgiven. And so Jesus restrained his desires, and we see that displayed in the Garden of Gethsemane when he's sweating drops of blood, pleading with Father, let there be another way, yet not my will, but your will be done. Jesus is the perfect example of restraint or self-control. The point I'm getting at is this. It is impossible to live a godly life. It is impossible to please the Lord apart from this virtue called self-control. And the reason is because our, is, is our flesh, our fallen nature is always, is always opposed to God. It always wants to please itself. It does not want to fulfill the will of God, but when we exercise spirit-empowered self-control, it is then that we can say no for the sake of a bigger and better yes. When we exercise self-control, we can say no to temporary gratification for a more long-lasting and more fulfilling yes. But there's kind of a caveat to all this. There's a kind of a qualification, an important um understanding in this. It's not just like, okay, I'll go do that. We must, we, we must understand that self-control isn't accidentally bumped into. You don't accidentally become self-controlled. Self-control is a, is a proactive quality. It's not passive in nature at all. It is, it is a, it is a virtue that is decided upon in advance. And it requires effort. It does require effort on our part. So I think it somewhat begs the question, how can this actually be true of me? What kind of effort can I exert in order to become a person who is self-controlled, who is living a life defined by restraint and discipline? It's actually very simple and yet very difficult. It's simple to understand, but a daily surrender that is required in order to effectively adopt this or for it to be true of your life. How do you acquire self-control, restraint, discipline? By walking in the Spirit. You walk in the Spirit. You live by the Spirit. And it becomes true of you. Self-control is obtained when we first are controlled by the Spirit. Paul says in Ephesians 4, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of your time because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. 
And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled, or the word here is to be consumed and controlled by the Spirit. The fact is, it is, it is when we are filled or, or when we are controlled by the Spirit, it is then that we can expect to display the fruit of the Spirit. Recall what we kind of declared from the very beginning of this series. We don't just go, okay, I'm going to do these things. These all come about by being filled by the indwelling and empowering and consuming Spirit of God in you. We are not strong enough. We are not determined enough. We are not uh, even self-controlled enough to adopt these things. This is something that the Spirit of God does in you, through you, for you, on behalf of His purposes, His will, and for His church. Our job is to walk in the Spirit. The fruit of walking in the Spirit is the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Paul says this in context a few verses earlier, and this has been the kind of the base passage that we've been working within during this whole series. Paul says, But I say to you, Walk by the Spirit. And what is the promise? And you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are no longer under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, goodness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have been crucified in the flesh with its passions and with its desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. The point is this. How do these virtues, these qualities, how do they become true of us? Walking in the Spirit. Living in the Spirit. Most practically, however, the way in which we can pursue faithfully walking in the Spirit or living by the Spirit, I want to give you four suggestions. By the way, worship team, can you come on up here? Do one final song, just a moment. These these practical solutions, um, I'm actually getting from a book by Aaron Meinkoff, so they're not unique to me, but they're very appropriate. Um, how do we walk in the Spirit? How do we pursue living in the Spirit so the fruits of the, the fruit of the Spirit is true of us? First of all, Remember the cross. Remember the cross. Aaron says this, Without a mind fixed on the cross, your self-control will be little more than self-help, and it won't last. You see, brothers and sisters, there's a reason why we, as much as we are able to, we celebrate and observe the sacrament of communion. It's a constant coming back to the cross. We're continually coming back to this place of giving thanks, of recognizing what Jesus has done, what our Heavenly Father has done through His Son to save us from our sins. We need that constant reminder because we're forgetful people. 
And so we to walk in the Spirit means we need to remember the cross regularly, daily in our life. But secondly, we need to embrace the fight. Remember what I said? Self-control takes effort. We need to embrace the, fri- the fight. Kevin Young says it this way, growth and godliness requires exertion on the part of the Christian. The fact is, you and I are in a spiritual battle. I know that sounds exhausting and daunting and not very fun maybe, but the fact is, we are in a spiritual battle and you have a formidable enemy who wants to take you out. And the moment you believe that, you know what, I'm tired of fighting or I don't like this imagery of battle, he's already winning. Because you're now willing to just kind of lay down your arms. You wish life would be different. The fact is we are in a spiritual battle. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against principalities and powers, against dark force, against rulers. That's the real battle. We don't see it with our own naked eyes necessarily, but we feel the effect of it. And the scripture reminds us of it. So embrace the fight. Thirdly, however, and this becomes a little more personal, bring the fiercest battle into light. Bring the fiercest part of the battle into the light. It's so interesting. Not interesting because it, is surprising, but Scripture speaks to this. Anything that is brought into the light, God actually redeems and covers and takes care of. Anything kept in the dark, unfortunately, gets uncovered, and that's much more difficult. It's much more humbling. The fact is, you and I, we all have struggles that are common to all of us, right? Right? 1 Corinthians 10.13, there's no sin that isn't common to every person. We all have struggles in this life. As a human being, we will have struggles that are common to each and every one of us, but there's also struggles that are unique to you. So the question is, what are your particular struggles? Where is the battle most enraged in your life? We don't need to stop looking, we need to stop pointing the finger and looking at each other We need to be honest with ourselves. Where do I stumble and fall? That's where I need to plead with the Spirit of God to bring victory. And that's our fourth and final point. Plead with the Spirit. In the end, we are all in desperate need of God's divine intervention in our lives by His Spirit. The fact is, none of us can display Holy Spirit qualities apart from Holy Spirit control. We can't display Holy Spirit qualities apart from Holy Spirit control. And so we plead, God, help me. Help me in my unbelief. Help me in my weakness. Help me in my vain attempts. As Jesus even commanded and encouraged in Matthew 26, watch and pray. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The Spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. fact is, in the end, every day you and I are fully dependent upon God's grace and mercy to effectively surrender to and to effectively fulfill God's will. But here's the good news. God's grace to you is immeasurably given. Let me just say that again. 
God's grace to us, to you, to me, to all people is immeasurably given. In other words, it never runs out. God doesn't exhaust his grace. As I talked with one dear brother this past week, always means always. Always doesn't mean there's conditions. Always means always apart from our performance. So God loves to lavish you with his grace. If we could just wrap our minds around that. Because you're like, but you don't know my life, Aaron. It doesn't matter. God knows it better than you know it. And he still wants to lavish you with his grace and with his mercy and with his kindness and with his love. He loves to do that because he glorifies himself in doing that. Isn't that amazing? God's grace is amazing.